Hello and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host Magnus and what I've been doing lately is working my way through a series of Batman vs. Joker comics and the reason for that is because there's a solo Joker movie that's coming up pretty soon and I seem to be, well less so now, but there was a time when it seemed like I was the only one in the room who was really excited about this movie and really interested to see what was coming, but over the course of the past, I don't know, like couple of weeks, I guess, what I've noticed is that there does seem to be a little bit more interest in this movie. There does seem to be a, uh, how I, I, I don't want to say excitement. There's a word. I don't even know what. It's late. So, but uh, the point is, it seems like the fans, or at least the people with whom I interact on Facebook, seem like they're a little bit more up for the game for this Joker movie now than they were, say, six months ago, right? So anyway, we'll see if, how or if that translates to download numbers. I'm actually kind of curious about that. But anyway, so last week what I did was I launched a, a as I say, it's a Batman versus Joker sort of miniseries. Actually, you know what? It's not even really Batman versus Joker, I guess. It's uh, maybe the better way to put it is that this is this miniseries is really just dedicated to a handful of Joker stories that I've always loved, always really enjoyed, and just have been a big fan of for a pretty long time. So anyway, so that's what I wanted to talk about. Now, if at any point during this episode that you're about to hear, uh, it may at some point seem like this is an episode that I recorded a like a really long time ago, but I'm like hack job editing it now and releasing it as though it's something that I just recorded even though it was actually recorded a long time ago and if you get that sensation at any point during the run of this episode uh, I say just ignore it you know it's probably just a trick of the microphone it's really not worth thinking about too much this is a it's a brand new episode that I just recorded it's it's brand spanking new I, I, I promise I, I didn't cut off the beginning and the end of this episode to make it sound like it was new and then record something new. No, I, I didn't do... I would never do that. No, no, no. So, anyway. So, now... Now it is time to talk about... Actually, this general storyline doesn't really have a title. A lot of people just call it The Return of the Joker. And once upon a time, that was probably a useful description for what happens in this story, but... Unfortunately, you know, as time goes by, there have been more and more returns of the Joker. So to say that this particular story is the return of the Joker could mean anything. So in the interest of accuracy and clarity, what I'm going to be talking about today, at least in this segment, is really two issues. First is Batman number 450 from July of 1990. And then Batman 451, also from July of 1990. And basically, I'm going to set the table on, I guess, the context in which this story takes place. But for right now, what you guys mostly need to understand is that it had been a while since readers had gotten a chance to read a new Joker story. So just put that in the background. Now, as it relates to Batman number 450, cover date, as I say, is July of 1990 cover price is a dollar. Comics costed a dollar in 1990. 
Those were the days. Anyway, executive editor is Dick Giordano, cover artist is Norm Brayfogel, writer is Marv Wolfman, penciler is Jim Aparo, inker is Mike DiCarlo, colorist is Adrian Roy, letterer is John Costanza. And actually, now that I look at it, my little list of notes here doesn't actually mention who the Batman editor was at the time, so let me just say Batman editor is Denny O'Neill. So, anyway, story synopsis for Batman number 450 is as follows. And by the way, this, the title of the story is Wild Card. Story synopsis is as follows. Commissioner Jim Gordon and Detective Dana Hanrahan investigate the death of a Gotham City judge. William Patricks, the so-called hanging judge, has been murdered by hanging. Believing the murder to be the Joker's handiwork, Gordon fumes over what happened to his what happened to Barbara, his daughter. Elsewhere, a shadowy and mysterious figure watching TV mysteriously from the shadows because this is the 90s and these are 90s comics and this mysterious shadowy character who was mysteriously watching TV from the shadows is actually the real Joker and he realizes that some imposter is running around Gotham City making horrible jokes using his name. Meanwhile, in Tokyo, Tim Drake's school class has landed at the airport where Tim's school teacher helpfully explains to the reader that Bruce Wayne paid for the class to visit Tokyo. Right as it looks like the Joker is active in Gotham City once again. As all that's going on, Bruce and Alfred talk about the wisdom of bringing Tim into Batman's crusade. Bruce is starting to think that it was a mistake. Alfred, for his own part, doesn't necessarily dispute that, and Bruce says that he wanted to kill the Joker back in A Death in the Family, and then asks, what if he can't stop himself from killing the Joker the next time they meet? Later, Commissioner Gordon and Detective Hanrahan stake out what looks like some kind of financial investor confab at a convention center when the phony Joker imposter guy shows up, robs everybody, kills a bunch of people, and then escapes without a trace in spite of the fact that the building had been sealed off by the cops, so what gives? A few minutes later, Curtis Bass meets with Marty, one of his employees. Bass then reveals that he's been posing as the Joker to perform robberies and get even richer than he already is. Elsewhere, the shadowy, mysterious figure continues mysteriously watching TV from the shadows. He recounts the Red Hood story and how that led to him becoming the Joker. He tries to commit a robbery of his own, but he just can't summon the nerve to do it. He has flashbacks to the events of The Killing Joke and A Death in the Family, which triggers a panic attack, and he flees back to uh, his rooming house to cower and hide in the shadows. Not long after that, the phony Joker robs a money train and kills somebody, this comic never actually says who, by pinching the victim's nose closed and then cramming the victim's mouth full of chestnuts. Batman and Gordon are both starting to think that, you know what? Son of a bitch, the Joker might actually be innocent of these crimes. It's an old chestnut. It's an old joke. It's another pun. Speaking of which, the shadowy, mysterious figure watching TV mysteriously from the shadows gets pissed off about this latest murder. It's too full of puns, and it's just not funny. Enraged, he smashes his TV to pieces and then announces that he finally gets the joke again. 
The shadowy, mysterious figure is revealed to be the real Joker, as I said earlier in the story, because it's really not that much of a reveal. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, I'm going to save my thoughts on, I guess, this story in macro for later on. As it goes for this specific issue, I like this cover for Batman number 450. I mean, it's not as good as the cover for Batman number 451, which I'll circle back to in just a little while, but I really dig this cover because it's recognizably the Joker. But you get the idea that all is not well with the Joker. You know, just a glance at at the cover lets you know that, yeah, it's the Joker, but he's he's maybe not quite on his A game here. And so what's going on, you know? And it does a good job of, I guess, setting the mood and the basic tenor of what this story is going to be. It's the Joker basically just sitting in this uh, beat-up chair, and he's hanging out in what looks like a maybe like an abandoned house or a really shitty apartment or something like that. Uh, paint is uh, peeling off the ceiling. The windows are shattered. The TV's been smashed in, which kind of foreshadows what happens at the end of this issue. There's no real furniture to, uh, to speak of. Everything is uh, crates and maybe like a rickety old card table or something like that. And it's he's basically just living in filth and squalor. Now, this is one of the leading and premier supervillains in all of Gotham City, and this is how he's living. So, the hell's going on, you know? And, I don't know, It's I think it's a really effective and very powerful cover. He's clutching his stomach or his chest, and you kind of get the idea that, you know, he's not exactly feeling very good. And it's really not a mystery as to why. I mean, taking two bullets to the chest like he did back in the, uh, a, uh, a Death in the Family... Yeah, I could see you having chest pains for a while after that. So anyway, overall, very well done. To get into the issue proper, though, this was drawn by Jim Aparo. And just triple underline this part. Guys, this was not my first exposure to Jim Aparo as an artist, right? I'd, I'd seen his art in the greatest Batman stories ever told. And I was even a fan of Jim Aparo based upon that. But seeing his work here... I mean, look, I was nine years old when this issue came out, but even I could tell that, you know what? Apero, I mean, just speaking of people who aren't exactly on their A game, the Joker is actually in pretty good company here because Jim Apero isn't really on top of it either. Now, I'll give the guy credit where credit's due, all right? He would slide even more. When you start getting into, you know, 1992, 93, 94, and, and in through there, compared to that stuff, this issue is actually really well done. But even a casual glance at this thing kind of lets you know that Jim Aparo has kind of slipped a little bit. You know, he's still good. You can still see a shadow of his former glory, but he's just not where he used to be. But what I kind of like about this issue and this art is that like I say, it's not it's not completely new school, dare I say, inferior Jim Aparo. You can still see traces and elements of what this guy used to be capable of. And so I guess in relation to that, I dig it. And, you know, I mean, this is a pretty common thing. You know, a lot of artists, it's like 
they wake up one morning and they've just lost it. I don't know what happens, but it's it's they've just lost it. And to be fair to Jim Aparo, yeah, he's slipping a little bit, but he has he didn't slip as badly as I've seen a ton of other artists slip. So whatever you think that's worth. Uh, getting into this story though, this was I think my first my first exposure to Detective Dana Hanrahan, and I'm basically operating on the assumption that Hanrahan is a creation of Marv Wolfman, maybe Marv Wolfman with Jim Aparo, you know? And basically, Hanrahan is Wolfman's all-purpose cop, you know? For those cop scenes where you can you can get away with using somebody other than Gordon, she's basically the face of the Gotham City Police Department. And I kind of like that, you know? I like Hanrahan as a character because... She's an outsider to Gotham City, and she thought she knew what she was getting herself into. But every single day, she discovers that, no, actually, this place, it's like it's sitting on a hellmouth or something, because Gotham City is just a fucking cesspool. Man, this place is horrible. And every day is worse than the last. It's never going to get better. And she can be, I guess, kind of a surrogate... Not so much for the reader, but for the new reader. You know, somebody who's just test-driving Batman comics for the first time. They don't really know what uh, these titles are all about. Hanrahan can kind of be there to sort of serve as you, in a sense, in the story. She's kind of like the reader's alter e- the new reader's alter ego in the story. She can react to stuff the same way that a new reader w- would react you know, this is insane. Why would anybody live here? You know, I, this is not normal. I mean, look, I've, I, I've seen crazy crime in my time. I've seen um, brutal, violent, deadly crime in my in my day. But Gotham City is just a whole different level of fucked up, you know, and this is not normal, you know, and she can be the one in the story who says those things, who does those things, who reacts in that way. And that's what I like about Hanrahan, you know, she's not She's not, I mean, I don't know why, but for some reason, a lot of writers fall into the trap of, you know, writing every, every female character as girl, power, Charlie's angels. We're going to go out there and beat up a bunch of guys, which is fucking stupid because that's, but anyway, that's, I don't know why, but that's just the default position that a lot of characters start off in, you know, that kind of obnoxious over the top. I can do anything as good as you or better type of just loony feminism that I, look, I mean, I I guess I'm not, in my old age, I don't really care if this offends anybody. I, that's just annoying. You know, it, it's, it's obnoxious, and it's just, it's fucking stupid. So, anyway. But that's not Hanrahan. She's basically there. She's competent, but at the same time, she's really creeped out by what is day-to-day life for a cop in Gotham City. And like I say, I mean, that just, that that, that plays for me. And at least to begin with in this story, you know, getting into pages uh, one and two, and certainly into page three, Gordon finds it very easy to believe, at least at first, that this is the Joker's handiwork. And in fact, on page two, he even says uh, to Detective Hanrahan, he said he, meaning the Joker, he's the only man I've ever wanted to see dead. No, more than dead. I wanted him to suffer a long and painful death. 
I've wanted to wipe that lousy grin off his face so long now it actually hurts. And considering what the Joker has put Gordon through, and again, I'm going to come back to that later on. Yeah, you know what? I I buy it. You know, I'm this... Look, I mean, Gordon is not exactly the most forgiving person in the world to begin with anyway. But when you start thinking about, you know, what this guy's been through, it's kind of crazy to think that, you know what, maybe Gordon didn't just quietly put a bullet through the Joker's head and deny all responsibility for it later on, you know? But, but seriously, who the hell's going to arrest him for that in Gotham fucking city, right? So anyway... The bottom of page two gets into a little bit more of what happened to uh, Babs. And again, I'm going to circle back to all of that later on. For right now, though, getting into pages three, uh, or not pages three and four, but just page three, Gordon goes back home and he thinks about what he lost. And we see basically a lot of uh, flashbacks from a death in the family. And this is one of those things that, honestly, it, doesn't completely make sense for the story. You know, yeah, I can buy that Gordon is in a seriously fucking bad mood, thanks to the Joker. What I kind of struggle with a bit more, though, is that I can't really buy into the idea that Gordon is in a seriously fucking bad mood because of the Joker due to the events of a death in the family, which honestly wouldn't have had much or maybe no effect at all on Gordon, you know? Really, that's Batman's issue to deal with. So it doesn't completely make sense that Gordon would remember the the events of a death in the family and then lose his shit over it. So I don't know. But whatever. I mean, Hanrahan basically told us what happened in uh, the uh, in the killing joke back on page two. So I guess for page three... We need to get a little bit more of a broader context and maybe get a flashback to a death in the family. So, I don't know. Whatever. It's not a weakness of the story, per se. I, it's just, does it doesn't completely make sense to me. And anyway, getting into uh, page four, uh, what we see is it's a shadowy, mysterious figure that ultimately is revealed to be the Joker, as I say. And this is a guy that You start, if you had no idea who the Joker is prior to reading the story, you get, you, you get a pretty decent idea of it here because over and above everything else, the Joker is a showman and a really, a really vain showman. And so everything that he does, every crime that he commits, every murder that he uh, participates in, there's... I guess, sort of a, a showbiz type of quality to it. You know, there's supposed to be some kind of a joke to it, you know? And not just an easy and cheesy pun. There's supposed to be some kind of a performance to it, you know? Or there's a joke to it. You know, there's a laugh on some sick, twisted level to be had. The idea, though, of these more pun-oriented types of crimes just doesn't really add up. Like hanging somebody who has the nickname the Hanging Judge, like the poetic justice of that, or the tragic irony, I suppose, of that. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a little interesting, but that's not really, 
that's not really the Joker's motif, you know? That's not his M.O. That's not what he'd do. And the Joker knows that. And it kind of bugs him, number one, that it happened. And number two, this is getting pinned on me. And I don't like that. So anyway, easy to believe him is, is what I'm saying. And I think there may actually be value to an impersonator Joker that we'll come back to later on. For right now, though, to get into page five, basically what we're seeing is uh, Tim Drake's uh, class from school uh, paying a visit to Tokyo. And I guess Bruce Wayne's hired a, a, a PI in Tokyo to make sure that the plane has landed safely. Because for those of you who don't remember, at this point in Batman comics, Tim Drake was still in training to become Robin. He hadn't officially become Robin yet, and he for damn sure hadn't faced off with the Joker just yet. You know, and Bruce was really gun-shy about anything related to Tim Drake's safety. And I guess when you stop and consider it for just a second, you know, it makes sense. You know, when you think about what happened to Jason Todd, yeah, Batman is going to be pretty fucking protective of Tim. He's not going to do anything that puts Tim in harm's way except for put him in a colorful Robin costume and send him out into the night to face criminals. But whatever. You know, it. I buy that Bruce, at least when it comes to the Joker, is he's really picky about Tim's safety. And so even though there's really no chance at all that the Joker could ever catch up with Tim Drake and his civilian guys, Bruce isn't taking any chances. And so he sends his off. So he sends the kid off to off to Tokyo. And after that, we get some self-doubt from Bruce in the Batcave where he's basically questioning, you know, am I doing the right thing here? You know, training Tim, or for that matter, even going up against the Joker point blank. I mean, what happens when I catch up with the Joker? Because you know I'm going to at some point. What happens when I do? I mean, look, I want to kill the guy. And it's taken a lot of self-restraint on my part not to have done that. So what happens if I can't control myself next time? And again, I'm going to circle back to all of this later on. But just in the here and now, let me just say that that's a believable thing for Batman to be concerned about. All right. Put it that way. So anyway, from there, we get uh, this big financial investor confab thing that uh, the police have staked out and the imposter, the imposter Joker shows up and we even get like this small little moment with uh, Vicky Vale trying to interview Curtis Bass on page nine. But before too long, the imposter Joker shows up and basically just... Uh, like I say, starts uh, uh, killing people. And that's, oddly enough, that's Commissioner Gordon's first little tip-off that, you know what? Son of a bitch. Yeah, this, this may not be the, the actual, the actual Joker. And there's just something about this and honestly, it really comes, it really starts coming home on uh, page 14 because in uh, panel four, one of the 
pretend Joker's uh, minions has uh, he's captured uh, Hanrahan and he's basically threatening to kill her. And Gordon just kind of loses himself for just a second. He says, damn you, not again, not Barbara. And Joker says, Barbara, you forget your own detective's name? And they call me crazy. Anyway, Kamish, calm down, or your girl here wears a permanent grin. And the confusion that's going on here, like, it's like this pretend Joker doesn't really understand the importance of Barbara, the name Barbara, and why that would be especially resonant with Gordon. And the reason for that, I think, should be self-evident. This is a pretend Joker. This isn't the real guy. But this is <clears throat> this is just another thing that has Gordon wondering that maybe something weird is is going on here. And so, anyway, like I say, I mean, the big reveal of that is that the the Joker that attacked the financial confab isn't the actual Joker. It's Curtis Bass in disguise. And speaking of Curtis Bass, he's basically set himself up with a nice little alibi here because on page 16, the police, Vicky Vale, and others, they basically find Bass roped to a chair He's got a sign stuck to his chest that says, Joke's on you, base. He's got a little bit of clown makeup on, and he basically looks like he's been trussed up by the Joker, right? And so he basically escorts Marty, his assistant, to uh, one of the back rooms, and it's revealed this whole thing was actually a scam by Curtis Bass to rob everybody and get even richer than he already is. And this is actually one of those things that I understand... I guess the narrative intent of this story, which again, I haven't completely talked about just yet, so forgive me, but I will put it that way. I'm coming back to it later. So my point right now, though, is to say I understand, I guess, the intent of this story just from a creative standpoint. One of the things, though, that I kind of struggle with is the idea that base would go out there stealing money. I mean, look, on some level, it makes sense for the Joker. In fact, I, I kind of miss that Joker—the Joker that go out and, or rather, that that goes out and, you know, commits crimes. You know, remember those days when the Joker committed crimes? Because I do. Kind of miss those days, actually. I mean, there was a time when the Joker wasn't just a mass murderer. He might kill people to get the job done, but he was still a crook. And it's kind of harder for me to believe that Curtis Bass would be interested in being a crook in as much as the guy's already rich to begin with. And guys, the wise old adage, it's a cliche, really. It goes, crime doesn't pay. And typically what people mean by that is it's not worth it to do because sooner or later, sooner, I think, the authorities are going to catch up with you, okay? It's a mathematical certainty. Sooner or later, you will get caught. You can be sure of that. And facing, basically ha being charged and then being charged with and then convicted of a felony, going off to a maximum security prison and all of that other bullshit, is it really worth stealing just a couple hundred dollars no you don't you'd have to be an idiot 
to, to be willing to make that kind of trade, you know? The other thing, though, crime doesn't pay, and that's very literal. Guys, it doesn't fucking pay, okay? You can make more money in the, in, in the honest world, for lack of a better word, you know, through honest, legitimate business than you ever could it doing most most kinds of crime. I mean, yeah, I'm sure there are certain criminal enterprises you can that you can undertake that'll that'll make you fucking rich, okay? But most criminal endeavors, guys, they just don't pay that much. You know, they they really don't. And so for somebody who looks to who who looks to be loaded already, somebody like Curtis Bass, it's hard for me to believe that a millionaire is going to be interested in stealing thousands of dollars from, well, his own class. You know, I just, I find that difficult to believe. Now, this is kind of tempered by the fact that for him, it's not just about the money. As much as anything, it's about building a better joker. So I guess on that level, I can buy into the idea that Bass would commit these crimes just because of the fact that it's not just about the money, I guess is the point. So anyway, so Marty is basically there to be, uh, to be Bass's conscience, right? Basically say, hey, we, we, we can't do this, okay? Look, I mean, yeah, everybody likes, you know, getting a little bit of a thrill once in a while, and, you know, uh, that's fine, but this, this is against the law. Dude, you killed people, you know, and... Anyway, he's basically there being a Jiminy Cricket. Perhaps too much of a Jiminy Cricket because Bass basically shoves Marty out a window. He's seen too much. And if he goes to the authorities, that's it. Show's over, right? So Marty, once he knows the truth and decides he doesn't want any part of this, he pretty much has to die. So, hmm. Anyway, going ahead to uh, page 18... We basically get another scene with uh, the Joker in his shithole apartment where he remembers his own origin. You know, basically the Ace Chemical Factory, the Red Hood, falling into the, the big acid bath and getting basically disfigured. And, you know, guys... I don't completely understand why it is that people don't want the Joker to have an origin story or worse yet, they act like he's never had an origin story before. Guys, this whole Red Hood thing has been part of the Joker's canon for decades. Decades, okay? And one little piece of shit out of line, or rather out of context line from the killing joke, that whole multiple choice thing, doesn't change that, you know? The Red Hood thing has been Joker canon at this point, really, for the majority of the character's history. And why people want to erase that or think it's okay to erase that, it fucking bothers me, you know? I just put it that way. It, it, it bothers me. Now, excuse me while I take a drag off of my e-cig here.
Elsewhere, on page 20, the phony baloney joker robs a money train. And here again, he basically, he, he does, he, he makes with the pun, right? I forget what you call this thing. I think it's called like a scythe or something. It's one of those big farming types of tools where you have this big long stick and then on the end of it is this giant blade and it kind of curves downward a bit. And I guess you use that to farm stuff. And anyway, so he swings it at a, a security guard, gets him in the stomach, and then the Joker says, a little evisceration, a real side splitter. And again, the fucking puns here, you know? And uh, then getting into a page 21, Batman, Gordon, and Hanrahan find uh, the Joker's latest victim inside the money, the, uh, money train. And Gordon even says that Everything seems right, but there's something wrong here, you know? The Joker's method of operation is... He's a comedian. You know, his jokes are sick. They're always deadly, but this doesn't this doesn't feel right. And even Batman speaks up by saying, This is more like a rippled mirror. The reflection is slightly askew. And... What this basically means is that even the even the main characters of this story, the protagonists, are starting to realize something here is out of place. Something here doesn't add up. And so it's not exactly the first thing that they think of, that this is an imposter joker. But they are starting to notice that there are certain things that... The joker has an M.O., and he's he's not going to break away from that ever. And so yet what we're seeing here is what looks to be the Joker. He's not completely fulfilling his own MO. So the fuck is going on? And what the fuck is going on is that there's an imposter Joker going on, uh, going around the city. And on page 22, the real Joker finally starts getting starts getting back on his game a little bit and he realizes you know what this it is kind of funny that there's a there's a pretend joker out there running around the city and fucking things up for me the real joker and that is <laughs> you know that 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 is kind of funny ha 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 now i've gotten the joke again i found my muse and he's not completely back yet but he's starting to come back. And that's basically where the issue ends. And, you know, I just, I kind of like the idea of the Joker as a showman having stage fright, in a sense. So, like I say, that works for me. So anyway, to get into Batman number 451, cover date is July of 1990. Cover price is, again, it's a dollar. Executive editor is Dick Giordano. Cover artist is Norm Brayfogle. Writer is Marv Wolfman. Penciler is Jim Aparo. Inker is Mike DiCarlo. Colorist is Adrian Roy. Letterer is John Costanza. And editor is Denny O'Neill. Story title is Judgments. Story synopsis is as follows. Batman, Gordon, and the Joker are all haunted by recent events. Gordon remembers how the Joker hurt Babs in The Killing Joke. Batman remembers finding Jason's Todd, uh, Jason Todd's body 
uh, after the explosion and a, a death in the family. The Joker remembers barely surviving getting shot in the chest in A Death in the Family. Elsewhere, Curtis Bass, the phony Joker, meets with his gang and muses over how easy it is to commit crimes while impersonating the Joker when Bobby, one of his gang, questions the wisdom of committing more crimes right now with all the heat they have on him, and Bass nearly throws him out a window. That seems to be Bass's go-to move. You know how Obi-Wan has a go-to move of chopping people's arms off in a bar? Or Darth Vader has a go-to move of blocking a, a lightsaber that somebody swings at his master? Well, Bass's uh, go-to move seems to be dropping people out a window, or at least threatening to. Later, Bobby hangs around a bar with one of Bass's other thugs. They both decide they're leaving town after the next job. Not long after they leave, Batman stops by the same bar and kicks some ass until he finds out who the gang members are. Not long after Batman leaves, the real Joker stops by that same bar and scares the same information out of the, out of the same patrons that Batman kicked the shit out of just moments earlier. As a parting shot, the Joker sticks a cigar in the thug's mouth. It's a real cigar, not an exploding cigar. Shaking as he leaves, the Joker muses that you should never give people what they expect. That's the joke. He just has to keep believing in himself, and he'll be back to his old self in no time. Batman catches up with Bobby in his rooming house. Not long after Batman leaves, the real Joker catches up with Bobby, too, and finds out what the fake Joker has planned for tonight's job. The two Jokers then clash at the airline ticket building where Bass, which is to say the phony Joker, wants to sell fake airline tickets worth about $300,000. Batman and the police interrupt. A shootout ensues, and both Jokers escape. Curtis Bass, the fake Joker, lures Batman and the police to Ace Chemical Factory, where he tries to kill them. The real Joker shows up, and then all hell breaks loose. A three-way fight ensues between Batman, Gordon, the Joker, and Bass. The Joker gets the upper hand over Bass, so Bass jumps into a huge fat of chemicals so that he can transform the same way the real Joker did. He ignores Batman's warnings that the chemicals are stronger today than the ones which transformed the Joker back in the old days, but it's too late. Bass leaps into the tank of chemicals and pretty much dies right away. Batman and the Joker then or rather, Batman and Gordon, then arrest the Joker and send his ass back to Arkham Asylum. But it's too late. The Joker's rediscovered himself and what it means to be the Joker. After, after he's completely crazy again, the Joker promises to make a full comeback. The end. So, what did I think? Well, Batman number 451 this was this was not the first issue of Batman I ever bought I mean the first issue of any Batman of any Batman comic that I ever bought as I've said in previous episodes was Detective Comics number 618 the first issue of Batman um the monthly title Batman that I ever bought was I believe Batman number 449 but Batman number 451 this was the first Batman comic I ever bought with the intention of becoming a Batman collector, you know? And that's due in part to the fact that this is a Norm Brayfogle cover. I knew B Norm Brayfogle from Detective Comics. 
and I hadn't really seen very much of Bray Fogle's art, and I for damn sure hadn't seen uh, Bray Fogle draw the Joker before, but this cover is fucking amazing. It's basically the Joker uh, machine gunning some bats that are flying around him while Batman swoops in from behind, and the Joker just has this maniacal glee in his eye and this insane grin on his face, and you can tell he's having the time of his life machine gunning these bats and he has no idea what's behind him and you know the fact that batman's about to pounce and this is just a, an amazingly well done cover and i really dig it and this is actually one of my top batman covers of all time and to kind of go off topic a little bit years and years and years ago some of you may remember a a big controversy that erupted really all over the internet and uh, I guess uh, comic book geek websites, but especially social media, right? There was basically a phony baloney pretend artist by the name of Rob Granito. And Rob Granito, as the story goes, he pretended to be an artist, but what he actually did was he would trace art that other people had done and then pass it off as his own, right? And he did it to Bruce Tim. He did it to uh, Jim Lee. I think he did it to Jim Aparo. I think I saw a couple of Todd McFarlane ripoffs and his little wannabe gallery and all this other stuff. And I don't know why, but he apparently got away with this for years years. He would sell his art at cons and he would pass it off as as his own and he would charge like real artist alley money for his art even though it's not his art. He traced everything. And it was a big scandal when this finally came to light. Basically what happened was Ethan Van Skyver and Mark Wade uh, they were at some con or another. They found out about Rob Granito being there, and they apparently had known. They both knew, apparently independently of one another. They both knew what a fucking ripoff uh, Granito is. And so even though I don't even think they like each other very much. I mean, if you're familiar with Ethan Van Skyver's politics... And if you're familiar with Mark Wade's politics, it stands to reason, you know what, these are two guys that may not even like being in the same con with one another. Nevertheless, they found out that he was ripping off artists, some of which have passed away. I mean, they're not even around to defend themselves anymore. And they both just kind of looked at each other and said, no, no, you don't get to do that. So they both left their fucking booths and they they confronted Rob Granito at this con and basically had it out with him right then and there. And that whole incident ended up uh, getting splashed, like I say, all across places like Bleeding Cool and, you know, places like that. And also all over Twitter, all over Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, right? It was a big to-do. And honestly, guys, I mean, I'm not trying to insult anybody or mock anybody or anything like that, but... I kind of have to wonder, really? I mean, it, was it really this big a surprise to you that this guy's a ripoff artist? You know, because when I when I found out what had happened, I just started, call it morbid curiosity as much as anything. I just started cruising around Rob Granito's 
Facebook page and I saw his art gallery, quote unquote, and I saw a reproduction of the cover to bring it all back. I saw a reproduction of the cover of Batman number 451. And guys, this, like I say, this is one of my, my, one of my favorite pieces of comic book art in all of history. I mean, this is, I might even go so far as to say this is, this might be in my top five favorite comic book covers of all time. Definitely my top five favorite Batman covers of all time. This is a great piece of art, you know? And it's Norm Brayfogel. He's not quite in his prime yet, but he's getting there. He's damn close to it. You know, you can see a couple of rough edges here and there where he's not as good as he would be just even a couple of years later, but he's damn good. He's in damn good form on this cover. And I saw Rob Granito's fucking hack version, this fucking Kmart version of of this badass cover for Batman 451. Again, one of my favorite pieces of Batman art in all of history, right? And the way this guy just made this fucking hack job out of it, I was fucking pissed when I saw this, that, you know, this motherfucker is charging people money for ripping off Norm Brayfogle's work. You know, I was so fucking pissed off, I couldn't even see straight, right? And not just because of the fact that there are artists out there who struggle and sweat and bleed to to get uh, to get to the level that they're at. They struggle and they sweat and they bleed even more just for a chance, a chance to make a living as a as a comic book artist. And here comes this fucking piece of shit who rips off all of their hard work. He doesn't invest any effort in. Uh, developing his own craft or his own style, his own voice, his own approach to art. No, he just fucking takes from other artists that work and slave for years, years to get to where they are. And God, I was so fucking livid when I saw the, the ripoff version of the cover of Batman 451. And I even posted, um, I'm going off memory here, but I think I even posted a comment. Somebody uh, tagged uh, right around the time that all of this stuff was going on, completely unrelated to it, but around the same time that Rob Granito was exposed as a fraud. Somebody posted a scan of the cover of Batman 451 uh, to Facebook, and just, I guess for fun and games, they tagged Norm Brayfogle to it. And, you know, Norm Brayfogle obviously clicked like for that because... Obviously, the guy's proud of his own art, and why shouldn't he be? Because this is fucking amazing art, if you ask me. And I, I, I couldn't help myself. I got a little bit snarky about it. I wrote something like, oh, so this is what an authentic Bray Fogel looks like. You know, post-Rob Granito, I was kind of curious, you know, and ha, 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 aren't we all so clever? I, don't, I thought it was kind of funny, but looking back at it, well, maybe not. So anyway, but that's, that's how, how pissed off I was. I mean, you know what, guys? I'll... I'll just go ahead and say it. If it was if it was any other Brayfogel cover, I might have let it slide. I might not have taken it so personally. But the fact that it was Batman 451, this amazing cover from this amazing artist who has meant so much to me for all these years, and it that really was the breaking point to me. And my point in saying all of this is that's how much I love this cover, guys. All right, this... The reason that I bought this comic 
is because of what an amazing cover this is, all right? And when I say that this is an amazing cover, the fact that seeing somebody else's cheap hack job version of it, the fact that this is one of my favorite Brayfogle pieces of all time, this is one of my favorite Batman covers of all time, one of my favorite comic book covers, point blank, of all time. Guys, I hope that tells you something. This is a fucking amazing cover. So anyway, I love it. To get to into the actual story, though, we basically get a typo right here on page one. And you know what? I get it. You know, there are certain misspellings that are kind of common in, in English, and we all do it at some point or another. But guys, the title of this story is Judgments, plural, ends with an S. The title of the story is Judgments. The word judgment has only one E in it, but the title of this story, which is Judgments, has two E's, and I don't know why, it just kind of bugs me when I see uh, misspellings in, in any kind of print, you know, it just, it bugs the shit out of me, you know, because these people really should know better. I mean, look, I can appreciate the fact that Marv Wolfman, he's only human, the guy's going to make mistakes from time to time. It's not his job to, it's his job to write. It's not necessarily his job to, to have everything perfect, you know? Other people are supposed to do that, and they were asleep at the wheel here. So it just, it fucking bugs me is the point. So anyway, we basically get flashbacks to uh, the killing joke on uh, page two. And this is a pre-oracle post-killing joke, Babs. Basically not really taking this whole Joker business maybe as seriously as she needs to. And Gordon is basically trying to tell her, look, I'm kind of afraid for you because look what look what happened the last time this maniac was on the loose, but I'm also afraid for me, Barbara. He's alive, and I'm scared of what I may do when I find him. And this is Gordon basically admitting a certain kind of feat of clay to his own daughter. And you can tell by the expression on her face at the bottom of page two, she never thought about this before, you know, but her dad's a cop. He's not a killer. But here he is anyway, caught between a rock and a hard place where it's his job from a professional standpoint, it's his job to arrest the Joker. But from a personal standpoint, it's his job as a father to put a bullet in the Joker's head and forget the whole thing, you know? And you can tell by the look on her face, she never realized this conflict existed inside her father before. So the reader at this point should know, but in case, in case this is your first issue, now you know. Getting into page three, this is actually one of my favorite Joker moments, really, of all time. The Joker basically goes to a newsstand. You remember newsstands? I do. Anyway, the Joker basically goes to a newsstand with the intention of uh, taking a newspaper without paying for it. And the news vendor stops him. He says, hey, wait a sec. You ain't paid for the paper. Where's my money? And then the Joker... It's revealed to be the Joker, right here on page three, whirls to face the news vendor, and he says, your money, 
You stopped me for a miserable 50 cents? Me. All right, all right, here, take it. <laughs> the Joker actually paying for something. Now that's really a joke, and I dig this moment because it's one of those moments where, like the Joker said before, never do what they expect. The Joker, maybe he's expected to steal a newspaper from a, a newsstand, right? What would be a bigger joke than actually paying for it? Instead of just putting a bullet in this guy's head and walking away with the paper, the Joker actually pays for the paper and lets the guy live. That's the joke. And I just like that, you know? I mean, the Joker, yeah, he kills people, but that's not necessarily his shtick, or it shouldn't be. If he, he kills somebody if he feels like doing it, but he might let somebody live because, hey, that's kind of funny too. You thought I was going to kill you, didn't you? <laughs> Joke's on you, asshole. And that's the Joker. You know, that's the joke. And it's like writers today, it's like they don't get that. You know, but anyway, in the broader context of pages two, three, and four, though, what we're basically getting are flashbacks to, on page two, with uh, Gordon and Babs, the killing joke. On page three, uh, we with the Joker, we get a flashback to uh, the very end of A Death in the Family. And then on page four, we get a flashback with Batman to a death in the family where basically we see the warehouse with Jason, uh, uh, Jason Todd and Sheila Haywood inside. We see that warehouse blow up and basically Batman is here to somewhat recapitulate his conflict that was set up back in Batman number 450. He's basically for the purpose of new readers Basically saying, hey, I still want to kill this guy. Nothing's changed. So anyway, that's really the, I guess, the sum and substance of pages two, three, and four. Basically, just kind of remind everybody, or for that matter, introduce for any to anybody who, who hadn't read Batman 450, introduce what exactly the conflicts and the, and the struggles are for the characters in this storyline, right? Uh, getting into page five, we start getting a little bit more into new business, at least as it relates for this issue. And Bass basically is thinking, he, or at least he threatens to uh, drop Bobby out the window when Bobby has a sudden attack of conscience. So page six comes around, and Batman basically kicks a little bit of ass at the bar, and, or start, not just at the bar, at bars and different uh, mob hangouts and places like that. Uh, criminals basically beating the shit out of him, trying to find answers on where he can find the Joker, or lacking that, the Joker's minions. That's all on page six. On page seven, he finds the bar that uh, Bobby and his little minion buddy just left, and he basically gets attacked by one of the other uh, people in the bar after he gets his answers, and... I just like this. We barely even see the fight. In fact, at the bottom of page seven, this is just one of those things about a paro that kind of bugs me. We, like, what the fuck is even happening at the bottom of page seven in that last panel? Is Batman, I don't even know what, I mean, what the hell is going on here? And a paro would do this sometimes where you see that there's action going on, but like, the hell is it? You know, I don't know. Obviously, the black guy is swinging that chain at Batman, but what exactly is Batman doing, you know? Is he 
is he like side is he dodging at the same time that he sidekicks the goon or is he just dodging out of the way I mean, the fuck is going on and page a doesn't really have a whole lot of answers for us because we see the goon trussed up and hanging off the ceiling as batman leaves and then the joker comes in and he gets the same answers that batman got he sticks a uh what the goon thinks is a uh, an exploding cigar into the goon's mouth, but it turns out it's a real cigar. And again, that's the joke. So, like, everybody expects the Joker to kill somebody. And so, yeah, go ahead and kill somebody. But the there are times when, you know what, it kind of pays maybe to let somebody live. Because isn't that the funnier joke sometimes? So, anyway. And he even says at the bottom of page 8, never give them what they expect. You know, and that is a comedian's way of thinking, you know, uh, a showman's way of thinking, a performer's way of thinking, you know. So anyway, page nine, Bobby makes it back to his apartment and he sees Batman waiting for him. What is what is the Joker planning for tonight? You know, what's what's the job going to be? So the joke, uh, or rather Bobby, gives the information to Batman. He starts packing a suitcase. The Joker shows up and says, basically he gets the, the same information out of Bobby that Bobby gave to Batman. And so basically everybody at this point has a pretty good reason for dropping in and interrupting the phony Joker's uh, robbery. And... On page 12, that's exactly what happens. The Joker does interrupt, but it's like, on the one hand, the Joker knew what he was in for, but on the other hand, he he has this flashback to a death in the family. He remembers getting shot, and looking down the barrel of Curtis Bass's gun basically gives him a flashback, and he almost has a panic attack. Almost dies, actually. And then the police and uh, Batman swoop into action, a basically a shootout ensues and Hanrahan basically manages to get a lucky shot in on the real Joker tags him in the arm, but basically everybody's gotten away. And I kind of like this moment at the bottom of page 15, where it's like everybody lost here. Everybody lost. A lot of uh, bases minions have gotten arrested Base didn't he didn't get the money that he uh, that he came to steal. Uh, the Joker got shot again. He escapes, but he got shot again. Uh, Base he didn't like I say he didn't get the money that he came for. And Gordon at the bottom of page fifteen, you can see that he's just he's a man that's been through a lot lately. Because he even, he's starting to wonder, he's starting to question his own efficacy here. He says, it's all my fault. Maybe I'm too old. Maybe I'm right next door to useless. And when you think about it, I mean, you failed in your job as, as a cop to arrest criminals. I mean, yeah, you got some of the minions, but the big fish mostly escaped. But deeper than that, the guy that crippled your daughter escaped. You failed as a cop, and on some level, you failed as a father. What do you think that's doing to Gordon, guys? Anyway, 
moving right along, everybody basically knows it's been all but broadcast by base where his next move is, uh, uh, what his next move is going to be and where everything's going to happen, Ace Chemicals. And so, sure enough, everybody knows where they need to go. And we get another shootout at Ace Chemicals where Batman, Gordon, and the real Joker have it out with Curtis Bass. Again, the phony Joker. And you can tell that the Joker, this is a very personal thing for him. Right here on page 20, he swoops down and crash lands on the fake Joker. You know, he says, the joke's on you. This is a joke too, you see. Irony mixed with deceit. The stuff that laughs are made of. And that's the fucking Joker right there. You know, it's irony, deceit, and death. That's, that's what the Joker is all about. And he says, he goes on to say, but you don't get the real, the real jokes, do you? Only I can. I'm the real Joker, pal. Accept no substitutes. You're more pinstripe than Pinhead. Brooks Brothers rather than Ringling. And that kind of sets the, uh, sets base, the phony Joker. That kind of sets him off. He says, I'm just as good as you. I see things the same way. I know the joke. I can really be you. I can become better than you. I can be the new Joker. And so he basically hops off the uh, catwalk and, di and uh, dives into this huge vat of chemicals and pretty much fucking dies, you know, right there. And that's, that's pretty much that. And so from there, the end ends more or less happily. The other cops swoop in and then they stop short. They decide right here on page 22, they have their chance. If they're going to kill the Joker, the real Joker, pretty much this is going to be their chance to do it if they're going to do it, you know? And Gordon wants it on some level. Batman wants it, but in the end, they decide, no, he's got to go back to Arkham. And then that's what happens. They send his ass back to Arkham Asylum. And that's what's going to enable... That's what's gonna enable the Joker to eventually recover to such a point where he can truly be himself again. And that's pretty much the end of the issue. And to finally start talking about all of this, look, like a lot of you, I've got a headcanon, trademark Emily Middleton. I've got a headcanon for Batman. And part of my headcanon specifically does not include the killing joke. But this whole story is just as much a sequel to The Killing Joke as it is a death in the family. And that makes for some interpretive difficulties because I rather enjoy this story overall, but I loathe The Killing Joke. And I don't want to see it canonized in continuity. A stalemate. So, the way I try to think of it is, it's the Joker that crippled Batgirl somehow 
but the exact details of what happened are up for grabs. And same thing, really, for a death in the family. On the one hand, the death of Jason Todd is great drama for Batman, you know? Batman's greatest mistake. And this is something that had haunt Batman for the rest of his days. It's a great story idea. The problem with both the killing choke and a death in the family is I don't care what vows Batman's made to the contrary, he'd kill the Joker for that stuff. Crippling Babs and murdering Jason both push things way too far. What happened to those characters crosses way too many lines. You don't really come back from that. So the way I prefer thinking of it, it makes more sense to interpret it as the Joker somehow crippled Batgirl, but the exact circumstances aren't really clear. And he also killed Jason Todd, but maybe he didn't do it knowingly or intentionally. Somehow I can picture Batman not killing the Joker if Barbara wasn't stripped naked, humiliated, photographed, and possibly raped while Jason Todd wasn't beaten to within an inch of his life and then blown up by a bomb. What I'm saying here is that if the Joker didn't push things quite as far as he did, it makes it more believable that Batman wouldn't break the guy's neck on sheer principle. Anyway, having said all that stuff, this is a fun little story. The basics, uh, actually, you know what, before I get into that, there is one more thing. Ah, fuck it, I'll come back to it later. The basic shtick of, uh, of this story is after the killing joke and after a death in the family, the Joker's basically got a bad case of stage fright. He's creatively uninspired. He's pretty much lost his muse, basically. And he's also been recovering from getting shot back in a death in the family for a while now. So, making matters worse, obviously you've got Curtis Bass impersonating the Joker, but doing a really bad job of it. The Joker's crimes always have a joke to him, but he tries to avoid puns and corny jokes for the central parts of his crimes. The Joker's a showman, and it offends his sensibilities for people to associate Curtis Bass's amateur hour Joker impersonation with the real thing. Because the issue here is that Bass's Joker goes for cheap puns and cheesy gags uh, to, uh, to murder all the time. And it's kind of pissing the real Joker off, to tell you the truth. And the reason I kind of like this concept is because Batman has inspired imitators in different stories. Hell, Batgirl is maybe the best example of a Batman imitator. So, if Batman inspires imitators, why wouldn't the Joker do the same? I kind of like the idea of somebody being a Joker fanboy and wanting to replace the actual Joker. It's just a really cool idea, but obviously there's a little something more going on here, like I started saying a second ago. In Batman number 451 on page 16, Gordon casts some doubt over who exactly shot Babs. Is it possible that it was actually Curtis Bass disguised as the Joker? And there's no way that I can logically prove this, but I think that Marv Wolfman knew that the Joker had gone too far with the killing joke and a death in the family. So implicating an imposter for those crimes and then killing the imposter off 
might be a good way to redeem the Joker, in a way, and get things a little bit more back to normal. Now, obviously his efforts weren't really successful. It's become certified canon for most people that the Joker beat and then murdered the Jason, uh, beat and then murdered uh, Jason Todd in A Death in the Family, and then also shot, paralyzed, and possibly raped Babs in The Killing Choke. Why anybody wants that shit and continuity is beyond me, but it pretty much is canon these days. But nevertheless, I choose to see this as Wolfman trying to reset the boundaries of things a little bit and maybe blame that stuff on somebody else. And obviously he wasn't completely successful with that. So anyway, overall, this this story isn't really a perfect fit for my headcanon because parts of it really do depend upon the specifics of a death in the family and the killing joke happening as they were printed and published. But nevertheless, the way I kind of rationalize all of this is that emotions are still running raw after those things happened. The Joker paralyzed Bat Batgirl. Not necessarily Babs, you understand. He didn't knowingly do that to Barbara. He did that to Batgirl. And he maybe unintentionally killed Jason Todd as Robin. That's my headcanon. That's how I prefer thinking of all of these things. And in that rubric, this story isn't exactly a perfect fit for my headcanon. But it works well enough, you know, it passes the squint test, I guess. And so it's a fun story overall. I enjoy it. And I kind of like the idea of, of the Joker being, I don't know, having a case of stage fright. Uh, that is a successful idea to me. But anyway, like I say, it's a fun story. And I don't know if this story's ever been reprinted, but these, these back issues, Batman 450 and number 451, they're pretty cheap on the back issue market. So... My guess is you can probably find these things pretty easily. So that, I think, just about does it for Return of the Joker. Now, as for next week, what I'm going to be talking about... Actually, you know what? Next week's comic doesn't really have a title either, now that I think about it. But the, I guess, the fan consensus seems to be that the title of this story is, or at least should be... Batman versus the Joker. This is the first appearance of the Joker from way back in Batman number one. Uh, and that's what I'm going to be talking about next week, but that's for next week. So as for this week, I think that's pretty much it for me. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook, 
just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, You can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trinus Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon. Because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs> <laughs>